This is Shelf Marks and I'm Zoe Cummins, podcaster in residence at the Royal Irish Academy. Writer Siobhan Mannion is our guest on Shelf Marks today. We hear about an Irish origin story and Siobhan's own relationship with the outdoors as we take a peek into the pockets of nature she finds on her daily walks. This week, from the Royal Irish Academy archives, we find out about the taking of Ireland, who took it, and what we ourselves can take from the story. If you want to know where you came from, who you take after, she is the first. She took the first step onto Irish soil. She is Césaire, granddaughter of Noah, Yes, that Noah, daughter of Bith. The flood is coming. All civilization will be wiped out and only those aboard the Ark will be saved. But Noah refuses passage to his own son Bith, thinking him unworthy. But Bith's daughter Césaire has a plan. She takes action. She builds three of her own vessels. She crews each with 50 women and sets sail to find a new land before the flood she would take this new land. She would repopulate the human race and start afresh. Césaire agrees to take her father with her and her husband Fintan MacBolcra and her brother Ladra. They can come as long as they acknowledge she's the leader. She takes control. But then on her journey, two of her ships are taken by the sea. Césaire continues and approaches the island of Ireland. This new land is ready for the taking. We know of this story as it's written down in the Laragawola Aaron, the Book of Invasions, also known as the Book of the Taking of Ireland. This book isn't really a book, it's a collection of poems and stories in the Irish language, a kind of fragmented origin story, a mythology. It's a sort of a history of Ireland and the Irish from the creation of the world to the Middle Ages. The texts are found in several different manuscripts, many of them held here in the Royal Irish Academy. And thinking about the book of the taking of Ireland, what Césaire took with her on her journey was initiative, a will to survive the flood. She took responsibility when her land became unlivable, threatened by flood and total change. She sought out a new way of life, sailed for seven years and arriving in Ireland, took the first step onto Irish soil. The book of the taking of Ireland tells of this island being settled or taken six times by six different groups of people. First Césaire, the people of Partholon, the people of Nemed, the Fyrbolog. These are all wiped out or forced to abandon the island, making way for the supernatural Tua de Danon and the mortal Milesians. This is the order of things. These are our myths. We can accept them, each taken down, gathered slip by slip from books written by scribes in the Middle Ages, turned over and retold to us. So what can we take from them? What can we take from the story of Césaire? Well, Césaire took control. She took Ireland. She took a chance on a new beginning. In a time of crisis, she took action. The 50 women were divided between the three men, Bith, Ladra and Fintan each with several wives. It proved too much for Bith and Ladra. They both died. Left with the burden of taking several wives and populating the country, Fintan, well, 
Fintan took off. Cesare's taking of Ireland wasn't enough. Taking a new land didn't help the new settlers survive. There was nowhere to hide from the deluge. The taking, it seems, was only half of it. Surviving was the next task in the face of catastrophic change, the flood. After the flood, the only man left was Fintan. The Laragawala describes that the only way he survived was to shapeshift. He took the shape of a salmon and swam the rivers of Ireland. He took the form of an eagle soaring above the cliffs. He took the form of a hawk staking out forests and fields. He learned what life was like as a creature. He became part of nature, close to it, allowing him to observe from a different viewpoint, to take stock. He took on new forms, adapted and saw things afresh. After 5,500 years of roaming, he took the form of a wise man who carried the knowledge of Ireland and the world with him. By communicating with animals and especially by taking their physical form, he became one with the natural world and its creatures. And he no longer needed to take. He could give back the knowledge to the people. And we now can either take it or leave it. Writer Siobhan Mannion's stories and essays have appeared in Irish and international publications including Granta, Winter Papers, Banshee, The Long Gaze Back and Galway Stories 2020. She's written plays and non-fiction pieces for radio and her work has appeared in translation. Her honours include an Arts Council Literature Bursary Award, a McDowell Fellowship, two Hennessy Awards and two New York Festival Radio Awards. She lives in Dublin, where she worked for many years in RTE and is now completing a collection of stories. I met her on her daily walk in Dublin inner city. The reason I wanted to meet you at this spot in particular is we're about halfway between Portobello Bridge and Harold's Cross Bridge. And I live about 10 minutes walk from here and I do a walk or run or sometimes both every day and I take pretty much the same route and what I love about this spot is you come up the street through the houses of like two three sometimes four stories and you turn the corner here and you suddenly see the canal and for being in the middle of the city you get a brief sense of a a small horizon so you have space between you and what you can see and you have an absolutely beautiful line of trees which obviously because of the time of year we are right now are looking absolutely spectacular and in my experience it's not happening right now but so often the sun is hitting the trees as I come around the corner here so I absolutely love the screen that it creates across the way if we turn the corner now we're going to hear how close we are to the traffic because between us and the trees we have the pavement the cycle lane the road the cycle lane the pavement the canal and then the trees what I love is this is really loud it feels very much like the city but I only ever look at the trees when I'm here so I feel like it's beginning of really being outside when I start the walk. And immediately you can hear you are bang in the middle of a city. Absolutely. Which, obviously, being in an urban space doesn't mean you're not in nature. I guess it's a question of what you focus your attention on. So we have a brief lull in the traffic now. So I love the way right now we have the rushes in the canal meeting the bottoms of the trees. Some of these trees are three or four times taller than the tiny houses behind them. It's exceptionally still at the moment, but usually what you have is 
movement all the way down. So it's like a shimmering screen and it's incredibly vivid. So up here we have our resident swans on the canal. I can just about see two of them poking their heads out of the water there. You can hear the car radios. I mean, you really are in the city. Apartments to our left, pigeons, litter, leaves. Mm. It's been raining all morning, so this pile of leaves is soaking wet, but at other times, it would be quite tempting to kick it up. Just gonna turn here now down this uh, small avenue. And so once we round the corner here, this is where if you're walking or running, you can become less aware of the traffic. You can become less aware of other people. For people who aren't familiar with this part of the city, we've just come off the canal and the difference in sound alone is amazing. You can hear, you can hear birds for a start, whereas a minute ago you could hear nothing but the roar of traffic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think obviously if you're doing the same route every day, you start to tune into different things, to smaller things. And what I have actually enjoyed doing is just tuning into where the nature is, where the nature is in the concrete, where it's growing up the walls, it's in the cracks in the pavement, just where life is springing up, tended or untended. Obviously, the very lucky amongst us have perhaps a small outside space, um, but you also see people have you know, window boxes or just the need to be in the proximity to something growing, to something green, to color. So we have a little tiny piece of wasteland here, which is basically full of weeds, full of stinging nettles, full of some kind of tall former flowers that I wouldn't be able to name. And it's, it's growing. It's no doubt a habitat for tiny creatures. It's behind a railing, we can't go inside. But it's probably also doing the surrounding area good. I mean, you know, I know there's, uh, you know, weeds. Weeds are sometimes described, aren't they, as just as plants in the wrong place. So I find it fascinating that we can be on what is basically an urban street. It's, it's concrete, it's pavement, it's, it's houses. But everywhere you look, there is something growing. Walking through a city, we're now walking through a whole lot of little artisan cottages. Here, there's human geography, there's architecture, and, you know, weeds and um, growth poking out of gardens and out of pavements. It's really quiet and it just feels really calm. Um, so I like here, if we look up, we have, look in these chimneys. So if we stand a couple of metres this way, there's just a spot here where little gardens have made themselves up in the chimneys. So it looks like palm fronds or something growing out of that one over there. And then up here we have, like, it looks like a tiny tree. We have something flowering up here. So we have like these tiny little ecosystems just layers of life everywhere. And this, the houses on these streets are very much like Coronation Street, aren't they? I mean, they're <laughs> terraced houses with sort of six or eight chimney pots on top. There's a lot of long back lanes here where you can't actually see where they lead. And of course, we have green also everywhere. We have green growing up from the ground, down the walls, overhanging other people's back gardens, more leaves accumulating on the side. So we have all of these lanes crisscrossing each other and you can kind of endlessly, you know, like Lego, build, build yourself up uh, a different size, different shaped walk every day, but still be very close to home. That's such an interesting way of looking at it, to, you know, build yourself a new city every time you go out for a walk. Potentially, yeah, and also to, to just pay attention to what's there. 
so Siobhan, for Shelf Marks, you've written a piece which has been prompted in a way by my looking at the Book of Invasions. Tell me about Hollow and Caesar. So what I uh, found interesting about the myth of Caesar, as you described it to me, was that she is a woman who is the leader of a primarily female community. And apparently, according to the myth, this community of primarily women were the first settlers in Ireland. So already there's a lot to think about there. <laughs> so um, the piece, uh, Hollow, what I decided to do was to look at the first few hours in Ireland under Césaire's leadership. Just to mention the title as well, Hollow, because uh, we're looking here at a female-led community, albeit fictitious, um, but, you know, it's an origin story. And I was trying to picture, well, you know, what would the priorities be of such a, a community, which basically is to, as I see it, live in harmony and with each other and with the earth. But also the title is hollow. So a hollow, it's both a space that has potential, but it's also a lack and also the hollow promise, you know, to look after the earth and whether or not such a promise is, is hollow. They swim in cold black water, over the rocks and through the weeds. From the ship, Césaire watches as two by two the women scale the steep bank, bodies disappearing into glittering green. She climbs from the boat, swims towards shore, crouches in the tide to pull her father with her, the last of the day's light hitting the trees. The forest is alive, the air thick with song and the thrum and whir of colourful birds this place full of things they are yet to make words for. It has taken so long to get here. For a time, everyone spoke and no one listened, while she told them the story of what was to come, sketched their future in the sand, until eventually only the river birds dipping their bills could be heard. She felled the trees, dragged the wood, and drew the women in. Together they built the ship, under the sun, piece by piece. And when the men, her father, her brother and one other, sought safe passage, she acquiesced, on condition her authority be recognised. If you are to become a leader, said her father on the eve of the journey. If we are to follow you, said her brother, the morning they set sail. You speak of what I am, she replied, of the position my ideas afford me. And Finton, the other one, smiled. They headed west over the high seas, 50 women and three men, away from the impending deluge, Césaire tracking each passing month with the arrival and departure of her own blood, stemming the private floods. And when, again and again, the others struggled, with hunger and motion sickness and sleeplessness, bickering in confinement, she pointed once more at their North Star and set them to work side by side. One wild night, emerging from the hollow of the boat to begin her shift on deck, she spied a creature shadowing the ship, the long dark hump of its back moving in parallel. At first she was alarmed, watching and waiting in the moon's light for what at any moment might erupt, until she learned its steady ways and was not afraid. And later, when there came a great storm, she didn't battle, didn't try to control, but rode with it through the relentless pounding hours 
all of them a part of the water, buoyed in the waves. Now, with drenched animal skins hung from the lowest boughs, their bodies drying in the air, she has dispatched the others to gather what they need. At her feet, a wealth of unknown stalks and blades, fronds and tendrils. She runs her hands over the bark of a silvery tree. Perhaps they will make fish traps from this gleaming wood. Something steps close by, a flash of grey fur between the leaves. Something else has left its droppings and the indentations of clawed feet. Strange beasts to be caught and cut from meat and bone, pelt and sinews. Césaire kneels to press a nutshell between two stones. They will labour through the seasons yet to reveal themselves and their distinct offerings. The fire leaps above the crack and spit of long, thin sticks, the ground soft and damp around it. With the tools they ferried, a fish has been speared, and another, and another, near the place where their new river joins the sea. Hot smoke begins to rise from the three glinting gold-brown creatures. Césaire lifts a nut and bites into it, hands another to Finton. During the crossing, their days were peopled, crowded. This evening, on their own, they walk under a pink fishbone sky until the full coming of the dark and its new orientation of stars. She puts a finger to his skin along the landscape where neck meets shoulders and spine, and he answers her want for the first time. Afterwards, returning to the others, to the shelter of a hollow under the canopy of the trees, they lie against the curve of the earth, her body still, the long voyage and ongoing rolling motion inside her. She took the helm on the ocean, and now, here, has set six women on watch, on the ground, and in the branches. A new sound comes at her, a disturbance of night birds beating their retreat. Beyond, the noise of the sea that has threatened them and carried them and will sustain. Césaire listens. They will construct dwellings and baskets and small boats to fish. She keeps listening, will make them all listen to the water, to the air, to the earth, and in this way, set their course. What I admire so much about that story, Siobhan, is how elemental it feels. Césaire's experience is through these sort of large, these broad natural forces, there's shapes, there's colours, but the world as she experiences, feels unnamed. None of the plants are named and none of the features are named. Obviously that was intentional, but did you start with that lack of names or did you put a whole lot in and then strip them out? First of all, I hadn't heard of Césaire and um, I spoke to a few other people to see if it was just me that wasn't aware of the story or if it was actually quite well known, but it seems it isn't. So I decided then that the story of Noah's Ark is very familiar. So you could play with that. You could do something and people would understand the reference point that you were starting from. But I thought that with a myth that isn't well known, I would inhabit it instead. And in so doing, perhaps have something to say about the world as it is now. The first question I had then was, this is a fictional story, but in order for the reader to experience something, it has to be 
set somewhere, it has to be in a time, it has to be in a place, it has to feel real. So I decided uh, that Césaire and her band of women and the three men would find an Ireland as it was when the first human settlers came here. So um, there are different versions of the myth and they give approximations of when this might have happened, but I decided that they would be hunter-gatherers. And so then what I did was I read up about the Mesolithic period, which I'm sure is full of facts that I probably knew when I was five or six years old, but I went back and I, I looked at what would the land have been? What would they have eaten? What would they, what skills would they have had? And the story has it that she is coming from the East. So in some, in some versions of the story, I think it's named as, as what we would understand today as Egypt and the Nile. So I decided that they would find Ireland, an Ireland that the hunter-gatherers had inhabited, but also for Césaire, it is all new. So she doesn't have the names for things. And also, we make up the names for things. So I actually had a lot of specific things that I had learned, like there would be brown trout and salmon in the rivers. They would have eaten hazelnuts. There would have been, there would have been birch trees. But that is not how Césaire would have experienced it. So I took those specifics away, but hoped to make the details visceral so that it would feel real without necessarily having all the names for what that is. Does it surprise you that we don't know more about this myth? Do we, do we ignore a lot of our folklore? And does it matter? Well, I'm never surprised by what I don't know. <laughs> and I definitely see the world in terms of what I don't know rather than what I do. Um, but it is interesting that this is a community of women, that Césaire is effectively the first leader in Ireland. And to map that onto, you know, the real life history of the country since. It does make it quite surprising that this myth isn't more well known. And when you walk, you either walk or run in the morning and you walk in the afternoon. Do you go out and hope to get lost or do you walk with purpose? Are you just sort of drifting through a city or are you thinking heavily about something when you go? If I'm here, which is where I live, then I'm especially in the last year and a half, often walking the same route. So it's a different experience, obviously, when you're traveling. And I think one of the, the great pleasures of any city or any place is, is to walk. So if I go anywhere, I don't really feel like I'm there until I've taken a walk. I do like that feeling of intentionally getting lost somewhere, just seeing where the walk takes you, just feeling like you're part of the environment. This local walk, it's pretty much tracking the same route. It's the purpose of it is is to run almost with without having to make any decisions, without having to think about to conserve the energy to do the run, to not be making decisions on where I'm going, to be taking in a different kind of newness, like small newness, the, the particularities of, of, a, of a given day. So when you're out walking um, or taking time away from your work, do you take notes or do you recall when you come back to your desk? I think I take notes in quite a haphazard fashion. I often find like little scraps of paper in my back pocket where I've written some cryptic series of words in really bad handwriting, which was obviously some fantastic idea that I had earlier that day. But um, Or I might text myself or, or a walk can be a good place to, to have time to think. So we've just turned on to another street and actually we're in one of the Dublin city squares 
Siobhan, you've talked a little bit about, you know, coming around these streets every day, especially over the last 18 months. Is there something for you about a routine that sits well in terms of the way you uh, approach your work and approach your day? I wouldn't say that I have a strict routine, but I do think, maybe especially recently when there's just a level of ambient stress that everyone is dealing with, I do think sometimes just reducing the amount of decisions you have to make in a day can be really helpful for leaving a bit of headspace for everything else and then just try to leave the rest of the time for your imagination to have a chance um, so I think the I mean I'm you know I don't want to sort of <laughs> conjure this notion of myself as a total action woman but you know my modest running and my uh, regular walking they're just kind of like anchors in the day there are just ways a, to get outside, B, to, to, to put shape on the day. Um, I think for me, a day that I've been outside, a day that I've managed to read, is a day that when I do get to the desk, I'm likely to be able to tap into something and just have the access to a part of your brain that isn't just dealing with all the stuff that needs to be done. <laughs> so you've written another piece for Shelf Microphone. The first piece was a piece of fiction, and this piece is a piece of non-fiction. Tell me about Rose Garden. So Rose Garden is a sister piece to the story Hollow in the sense that it picks up on some similar themes, namely migration, specifically the migration of women and also our bonds with nature. Rose Garden. My mother grew roses in the back garden of our house on a council estate in England. She took visible pleasure in being out in the air, kneeling on the earth, snipping the bushes to the sounds of the bees and the birds. Her migration had taken her from the west coast of Ireland, from a remote hill in Connemara, through a nursing career in 1960s Liverpool and London, eventually settling in the small city of Cambridge, amid the flat lands of East Anglia, leaving behind the mountains, the gorse and heather, harebells and fuchsia, the grassy sand dunes and the Atlantic Ocean, for an urban plot growing lettuces, scallions, rhubarb, and guiding a sunflower up the wall beside our front door. How did she know what to plant in this new soil? I don't remember her reading up, or listening to the radio, or watching gardening shows. I remember her as primarily in motion. But I do remember her out the back, standing at the low wire fence, talking to our neighbours, tending their gardens in parallel. Growing up in a big family in a small house, much of my time was spent outdoors, my mother shooing us down the back step in all weathers. The single tree at the end of our lawn was easy to climb up onto a wide seat. Inside a hedge, I discovered a natural cave in the green and out front on the street's narrow grass verge was a small hollow I claimed as a boat. Occasionally, we would go fruit picking, boiling and sugaring gooseberries into jars of jam, where once, out of necessity, my mother had harvested seaweed, dug up potatoes, picked wild strawberries. Now she tracked down straight lines, trailed by children carrying punnets of plums, apples and blueberries to be weighed. After the garden, her second love was drawing and painting, precise fine line sketches of birds, abstract landscapes in watercolours, tapping her knowledge and her imagination. The summer I was 15, my parents sold our house. During one of the viewings, 
The garden became a shimmering river of pink and yellow flowers in full bloom, all the colours alive in the perfectly timed departure of a cloud blocking the sun. I can still see an older couple standing at our window, captivated, knowing in that moment that they had found the one, our modest standard-issue council house, a gateway to the natural world. My own migration has taken me from east back to west, landing me in Dublin, frequently returning to the familiar, apparently unchanging wildness of Connemara, or the wild Atlantic way, now that it has been named and re-seen. I am learning to grow things in my own urban space, playing a game of seedling or weedling whenever new shoots appear, thinking often of my mother and all that I would like to ask her. Soon I will have lived as long as she did. This autumn, while out blackberry picking, I stepped over stones in shallow water to reach the glistening bushes and quickly found myself in need of rescue by way of a pair of wellies flung across the stream. Everything entirely altered in a matter of minutes, the scene evolving into one of deepening, rushing water, while I chased an immediate goal, distracted from the bigger picture. In her wooden paint box, my mother kept a tiny notebook in which the only words she wrote were the colours required to create others. Cherry red, crimson lake, burnt sienna and azure blue. Chestnut, chrome yellow, Venetian red and yellow ochre. Ivy green, French ochre, lamp black and Prussian blue. One by one the colour mixes listed, the knowledge noted and applied. As different parts of the world catastrophically flood and burn and melt, and multiple species disappear permanently from the earth, what decisions would be made if those holding real power chose to foster the connections that have been lost or are being deliberately dismantled? What is needed is known. So when do we plan to change course? In the meantime, with packets of seed, fresh cuttings, hardy spring bulbs, I continue my own small attempts to grow, listening to the wind shake the leaves of a silver birch while I compete with a squirrel for custody of a flower bed, pull up weeds, spread compost and trim a single rosebush. In Rose Garden, Siobhan, you're much more specific about the type of flowers, plants, the colours of your mother's painting palette, and, and it's very, very detailed. And you yourself have taken to gardening and, and you're getting a lot of satisfaction from it. What kind of satisfaction do you get from having a place to tend? Well, I'm very much an amateur gardener, but it has brought me a lot of joy in the last couple of years. and. Before that, I had a single plant in the house, which is um, a busy lizzie. So beautiful hot pink flowers and green leaves. And it came from a, a cutting of a plant that actually belonged to my grandmother, my grandmother on my father's side. And I actually, um, I actually checked with my aunt the other day to see how long this busy lizzie has been going, sitting on the windowsill in her kitchen. And she thinks it's been there since the late 1970s which is absolutely amazing. So I now have, um, for years I had the single cutting and I'd await my single hot pink flower every year. 
but recently I've started taking cuttings from it myself and I just find it completely amazing that you can just snip a piece off, put it in a jar of water and come back a few weeks later and it's sprouted these amazing long roots, put it in a pot of compost and it will grow. So now what I have is 10 busy lizzies, two of which live inside. One of them is taking up half of my desk and they're glorious. And I actually looked them up and it turns out that in some parts of the world, a busy Lizzie, perhaps you know this, is also described as a patient Lucy. Did you know that? I did not know that. <laughs> So apparently it's because she's busy producing flowers, but then she's patiently displaying them. So these flowers last a long time and they're stunning. And um, it just really does give me joy every day to look at this plant on my desk and now to look at the many plants I have dotted around the place, all just from this one plant that has lived in my granny's kitchen. I mean, my granny died decades ago, but this beautiful plant lives on. But I also think that it's the generational, you know, it's it's gone from your grandmother down to you. And similarly with Hollow, we have Césaire arriving in Ireland and theoretically, if she's the first woman in Ireland, we're all descended from her or the various peoples that came to Ireland after her. And in the same way, you know, tending what was here before in a very simple way with your busy Lizzie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, everything is connected from the past and into the future, whatever the future may be. I think both um, Hollow and Rose Garden are also making the very simple point that we are, we're of nature, we're not situated in it. So we're, we've been on a walk uh, today and I've been asking you lots of questions about how you achieve what you achieve in your writing. Why do you think that people like me and others are so fascinated by how other writers get things down on the page and, and what makes it work and how they get to that place? Well, I'm fascinated by that too. Um, I'm much more comfortable being the person who is asking the questions or listening to the writer. Um, I think everybody is creative. Not everybody necessarily has an outlet. Not everybody has that opportunity or not everybody necessarily gets to exercise that. But I think that people are interested in, in how things are made. Um, everybody has an imagination. You know, I'm, I find it fascinating to hear about how something is made. In particular, to hear that it isn't necessarily the product of routine. It isn't the product of planning. It's often like so many things, the product of just it being given time, um, giving your attention to something, going over and over it, and how haphazard that can be, how crowded out that can obviously be by just daily life. It's quite a luxury to have any time at all to write, I think. Do you think in listening or reading about how other people do it, how, how do you think it encourages people to try it themselves? Well, I think if you're listening, you're already interested. Um, I think if that's if that's an encouragement, that's great. I think though that people don't need advice to be able to write, people just need to write if they want to. And then sometimes having written something yourself gives you, perhaps makes other people's descriptions of it or tips more useful because you have something to apply it to. But um, I think it's very easy for things to be overly mystified as well. I mean, I think like a lot of things, all creative work is work. Um, it taps into the imagination. Uh, you make something, it's very unlikely to be hatched in its 
finished form and then the fun begins. You go back and you uh, consider it and edit it and try and improve it, maybe get somebody to look at it who's going to give you an honest response. But it needs to start with what you're doing yourself and not to be, you know, not to be intimidated, not to be overawed, just to, as you know, as ever, take, take pleasure in the things that other people have created and the place of imagination in our world and the need, you know, as much as we need nature and to be outside, we also need, you know, we also need art in its, in its various forms. Thanks to Siobhan Mannion for taking me on a walk around Dublin and for writing Hollow and Rose Garden for Shelfmarks. This week's research on Césaire came from looking through many of the sources on the Largo Walla Éireann, available in the Royal Irish Academy. I looked at the modern recension of the texts by Michael O'Cleary, McAllister's Translations and Notes, and the online resource of vanhamel.nl. It holds information on hundreds of texts and manuscripts that chart our mythology and history. Next week is our final episode in the series with writer Neil Hegarty. Thanks to the Royal Irish Academy, Shelfmarks is funded by the Arts Council Literature Project Award.